Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Opera and Coffee podcast. This is episode 10 on the fear of making art. And I want to thank you for listening and being very patient with me. Um, I expected to be doing a lot more podcasting this summer. However, this has been a very busy summer for me. My partner and I are renovating an apartment in Queens. I still currently live in northern Manhattan, but we're renovating an apartment in Queens. And hopefully uh, we'll have that ready to go by October 1st and I'll be moving and that whole thing. But that has taken up the majority of my time and energy this summer. And uh, it's just been a lot of balancing. But today I felt extremely inspired. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. And I wanted to do a podcast on it because I've just seen a trend lately with a lot of like my friends and colleagues. And I thought that this would be a good um, thing to talk about on this very unseasonably cooler, but much more pleasant (laughs) August day in New York City. So on the fear of making art. So the thing that really spurred me to do this today was I noticed a couple weeks ago on Netflix that they had added a movie that was so important to me in high school and that I loved so much. And I loved both the book and the movie. They were very pivotal in my development as an artist, as a woman, in my aesthetics, in my, you know, choices and just life. And that is Memoirs of a Geisha. I love Memoirs of a Geisha. I love the book. I love the movie. I love the aesthetic of the movie. It's a very, it's a beautiful movie. I think they won the Emmy for art direction. And you can see why when you watch this movie, it's just incredible. Um, Yo-Yo Ma and Itzhak Perlman do the solos in the score which I'm not the world's biggest John Williams fan, but I do like that score a lot. It's really beautiful. And just the movie in general is stunning. Like it's very well put together. Um, So I was watching the movie this weekend and just reminiscing about how beautiful the movie was and the aesthetics and the story and thinking about how important this movie was to me as, you know, a young woman growing up in Southwestern Pennsylvania and, you know, reading the book Memoirs of a Geisha. And I remember becoming fascinated. I was very fascinated at that point in my life with Japanese culture, as I still am. I'm a huge anime fan and I'm super excited for the new Cowboy Bebop that's going to be live, but that's a complete other discussion. But I remember reading the book and being very inspired to go look up like what are geishas really like, because I understood this was a work of fiction. And just becoming fascinated with that entire world. And there's a line in that movie that always struck me. And it was whenever she's training as an apprentice, the main character, and the woman who is training her turns to her and says, you know, you're not a courtesan, although that's the great belief of what geishas are. She basically said, you are a walking work of art. Like everything you do is art. And that has always struck me as a very important message in my life. And I take that very seriously. 
Um, but of course, watching it with new eyes when you're 33 years old and in, in the modern era is very different. And um, I, out of interest, Googled Memoirs of a Geisha, the movie, because I wanted, you know, more information and I just wanted to see, like, more about it. And I knew it was written by a an American gentleman whose name is Arthur Golden. I read up a little bit about him and his life and, you know, how he studied Japanese art and decided to travel to Japan and he interviewed a geisha, a former geisha, I should say, about her experiences. And then that is really what got translated into the book. And it's interesting because there is a lot of controversy surrounding this movie that I was not aware of when I was in high school. The, the first piece of controversy was obviously that this is a white man writing about Japanese culture. So it was a very westernized movie, um, which doesn't surprise me really. And then the next thing, or the next thing that I was reading about was that this former geisha had sworn Arthur to secrecy in her interview and he had not kept her a secret. In fact, he acknowledged her in the beginning acknowledgements. And so she broke a bunch of vows as a geisha to give him this information and they were broken. Um, it, you know, in a very public manner and she was very offended by that. And then the third thing was when they made the movie, the three main female leads were in fact Chinese and not Japanese, which caused a whole big uproar. And it was a big back and forth and it was very mixed because Ken Watanabe, who played the male lead, actually defended these Chinese women, but then the Chinese government actually shamed them. Like it was a big mess. And it was, it's really interesting because I knew none of this about Memoirs of a Geisha. I just loved the art of the movie. And um, I understand very deeply the issues within it of like a white man writing about an Asian person's experience and how problematic that is. But I didn't realize that there was this entire universe of controversy even beyond that. Um, and it got me to contemplating and thinking about does this negate how important this art was to me at the time because i was a very different person uh when the movie came out in 2005 uh, i was you know a junior in high school i had a very different understanding of cultural appropriation i had a very different understanding of these ideas because the society at large was very different in the united states um, I also am a white girl from southwestern Pennsylvania, and unfortunately that colored a lot of it. Um, and I have a very different understanding now. Uh, and it's interesting looking back on all of that because my initial reaction was, yes, Candace, of course this negates it. Because, like, I mean, there's all these problems with it. And you, you know, you should be angry. And I'm like, yeah, but this was a really important movie to me. And this is a really important book to me. And it still like resonates with me in a lot of ways. And so even though this is a problematic piece of art, which a lot of pieces of art are controversial and problematic. I'm going to get to that in a minute. 
Um, it doesn't negate the effect it had on me at 17, 18 years old. So then this kind of helps me segue into another thing I want to talk about, which is, you know, many artists are plagued with anxiety because the creation of art always invites criticism. Like no matter what you do, somebody's not going to be happy about it. Um, I remember sitting and listening once to a, an agent talking about how he hires singers. And I remember, and I don't remember who this agent was. Otherwise I would actually like talk about who they were. Um, and I would give them credit, but I, I frankly don't remember. It was a couple of years ago when I was in a masterclass and I remember he said, you know, here's the thing. I like what I like, just like everybody else in the world. And I like, let's just say I like chocolate ice cream. And if you walk in the room and your voice is the equivalent of chocolate ice cream, I'm going to hire you because I like chocolate ice cream, but I don't like strawberry ice cream. And if you walk in the room and your voice is strawberry ice cream, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just that I don't like strawberry ice cream. Um, and I always kept that in the back of my head when I go into an audition. It's like, I could be somebody's chocolate ice cream and I could be the strawberry ice cream. I don't know that day. I mean, you, you literally don't know when you walk in the room. And the other quote that I really like is Dita Von Teese's quote. She's a burlesque performer. And she's quoted as saying, um, you can be the juiciest, ripest, most beautiful peach in the world, but inevitably there's going to be somebody in the world who doesn't like peaches. And I say this also because this brings back another memory and this goes back to college. Um, I had a really great music history teacher in college. Shout out to Mr. Heiberger. Um, he was a really excellent guy and a really great teacher. And he really humanized these like composers to us in college. He did a really good job of that. And I remember um, the first day of music history class, he was looking at all of us. We're all like little freshmen, right? And he looked at all of us and he said, just remember that these composers were people. They woke up in the morning, they, you know, drank their coffee and shaved their face and, you know, read the paper and took care of their annoying children. And like, they were human. And he said, a lot of times we put them on this pedestal and we think that they're these gods and they're not. And I remember one day he brought this book to class and I can't remember what the book was, but I have to go find it. And it was a book about critics of really famous, like romantic and classical composers. And there were some really scathing reviews of like really famous white dude composers like Bach and like Mahler <laughs> and all of these big names. Bartok was in there, although Bartok is like an acquired taste. And I, I totally like remember thinking to myself, man, that's really interesting. And some of them were really nasty. Like you think of the 1800s and these like really nice dudes with their powder, you know, their, well, they wouldn't have powdered wings back then, but you get the idea with their like little press suits looking all smug and like writing like nice little articles. And then they're like, yeah, box sucked, man. He was terrible basically. <laughs> and today we put these people at such high esteem, but they even had 
extreme critics. Um, you just can't impress or please everyone. And, you know, we are in a culture that, you know, is trying to get better. And, you know, we have this whole cancel culture thing going on and we can sit and argue whether it's good or whether it's bad. And I, I kind of fall on the side of neutrally. It depends. Like there's situations where I think it's beautiful and it helps. And I think there's situations where it's problematic. Um, but in the performing arts, we also have to keep this in mind. And I see this a lot um, because I teach in higher ed, but you know, when you're going through into a career in the arts, you feel like you have something to say. That's why we go into the arts. Um, you know, we want to help people feel more or we want to represent, uh, see ourselves represented more or people like us represented more, or we want to um, express ourselves, whatever. There are many reasons to go into art, but we're driven by this deep need and desire to perform or to paint, or to um, dance, or whatever. And so we go into school to learn how to do this. Most of us do. Some of us do not. Respect on both sides. And, you know, we're trained in that situation to produce perfection for our teacher. We're trained to please people. And... I see this a lot in my own students, you know, I'll be like, what do you want to sing? And they're like, well, I don't know. What should I sing? And I'm like, you know, yes, there's a, there's a piece of that, but there's also a piece of what do you want to do? What got you into this? What, what lights you on fire? That's what I want to know because then I can more effectively find literature for you. You know, um, it, is a good thing in some senses because it helps us to create technique and it helps us to perfect our art form and it helps us to get better. But I also think it's a little bit problematic because by nature, it makes us anxious and fearful. And this is where I wanted to kind of go with this podcast is the fear of making art. I've seen this in myself and I've seen this with a lot of my colleagues and friends lately, but there is because of the way society is functioning right now, a very universal fear. And a like two weeks ago, I talked about social media in my music business class, my musical theater business class rather. And my students were saying, you know, like you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't. And I agree, like, you know, a lot of times people will be like, oh, this person didn't express something on Instagram, or they're not speaking up about this, or they are speaking up about this other thing. And like, they talked about this 20 years ago, and I found this picture from 10 years ago and all this. And it's like, you know, everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid of taking a misstep. Everybody's afraid of making the art that gets posted on the internet and gets made fun of. Everybody's afraid of like ending up with that viral video or that 24 hour news cycle article or whatever. And I, that's a real fear, a very real fear that I also have. And I am not very present on things like social media. Um, we need to learn 
in some ways though, to live with that fear um, and to coexist with it and with criticism. Otherwise we're, we're going to be paralyzed because the thing that I see a lot lately, and I don't know if this is the advent of COVID. I, I really don't know what it is, but I think that there is a lot of fear of creating really, really interesting different things in art because there is this great and epic fear of criticism, cancel culture, um, you know, what have you, all of these things. And this fear of being ridiculed and made a fool of. And they're very real fears. And I have to be honest, I have more of a fear now, and I'm a fairly experienced artist, than I ever had when I was first in college. And I think that that has more to do with society than it does with my art making because I'm a much better singer than I was. And I'm a much more like grounded artist than I used to be. However, I am much more fearful of putting myself out there. And I found a couple of things helpful in this. And I don't, by the way, I do want to say, I don't think there's any like right answer to this problem in general. I think that this is a wide issue. And I think that this is a controversial thing to talk about. But I think that this is kind of the water that we're swimming in right now. And it always existed. Like, I mean, like I said, thinking of that book that Mr. Heiberger pulled out when we were in music history when I was in college, like, it's always existed. People were, were not fans of Bach back in his day. But you didn't have the engine that you have now of the 24-hour news cycle and social media and all the rest of it and the permanency of things being online. Um, so this is just the water we're swimming in. So I do think that there should be a sense of carefulness. Like you do need to be careful in what you put out into the world. But I also think that there, there are some things that obviously some lines that should not be crossed, but you should still create things and you should still put things out there. Um, one of my favorite writers especially on the subjects of social media and all of these different kinds of things is Jaron Lanier. And he is uh, the founder of virtual reality, a controversial figure, ironically. Um, and he worked, he's worked in Silicon Valley for a very, very long time. And he's written some really interesting stuff. I find it fascinating. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says. I, pretty much agree with him on all the social media information. Um, but I find it very interesting that one of the things he brings up is criticism is optimism. If you are being critical of something, you're basically saying that I just want to make it better. I want it to be better. I'm not saying that to throw everything out and that it completely sucks. I'm saying that I want it to get better. And when the whole world was up in arms about BLM as they should have been months ago, um, during the whole Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of criticism of the theater industry and how, why were there not more, you know, 
black people being represented on stage and black people being in positions of power and all of this. And I unfortunately saw a lot of pushback on that. And I think they negated to see the people pushing back that these people were not um, just throwing stones to throw stones. They were saying, hey, we believe in theater. Let's make it better. Like it was an honest move forward. And that's what I think we need to do more is we need to look at criticism as a way to move forward. I also had a really great voice teacher um, in my past, the voice teacher who saved me. And I remember she got a bad review once and I read it. It was, it wasn't scathing, but it was a rough review. And she said, you know, you can always learn something from a review. That was her response to me. And I thought, hmm, interesting. She didn't, you know, she's like, it hurt at my moment. And then I was like, okay, what can I learn from this? And I think that that's how we need to teach our students to approach criticism and also a way that we need to approach criticism. I mean, I'm classic for being like, you know, like, oh, that hurts. That's so terrible. It's a personal attack. I mean, we're all built like that because we're human and that's where we're going to go. But if we let ourselves feel that, that hurt and that pain, which I think is proper, and then we step back and say, okay, well, then how can I be better? That puts us in a place of learning and humbleness. And I think that's helpful. Um, one of the examples that I also always think of is my personal hero. And uh, y'all can judge me all you want, but I am like a fangirl of Stravinsky big time. Big fangirl of Stravinsky. <laughs> and one of the things that I always keep in mind with Stravinsky was Stravinsky had people walk out of performances pretty frequently. And by the way, I live in New York City. In Pittsburgh, people are like obsessively polite. At least that was my finding. And like most of the United States, they'll pretty much stay through performances. Um, but in New York, man, people will walk out of things. <laughs> like It's also New Yorkers. Like if they don't like something, they're like, ah, you know, screw this. I'm going to like go get some ice cream, you know, <laughs> like... I've watched people walk out of the Metropolitan Opera. I've seen them walk out of Shakespeare in the Park. I've seen them walk out of, like, they just will walk out if they don't like it. They're just like, I'm done. Like, this is this is strawberry ice cream, man. I'm not about it. And they'll just leave. And, you know, it's one of those things that I sit down and think about a lot. It's like, I love Stravinsky. I understand Stravinsky is not everybody's chocolate ice cream. I, I really get it. Sorry, that's my cat. He likes to meow really loud whenever he wants attention or food. And it's almost food time. Anyway. <laughs> Polly! Go get food in a second. See? Now he's like, cool with it. Anyway. So, I fear the critics. We all fear the critics. But we admire courage. And I think a lot of times we forget that we can also be courageous. And if we choose courage that day, if we wake up and decide, hey, I'm going to put myself out there, I'm going to do this scary thing, and I'm going to take a stand in this way, and I'm going to, you know, impress my values, then 
we're going to inspire other people to do the same. And I really encourage all of you to keep this in mind moving forward, that even if your art is controversial, and even if you don't think it's good, I think that's actually more of the fear anymore of like, well, it's just not perfect. Well, nothing is perfect, friends. Like nothing is perfect. And the world would be damn boring if it was perfect. Um, we just want you. And I'm going to quote one of my um, colleagues, Kaisha. I heard her say this in a podcast. Um once and I really really think it's like a very telling line and I think she heard it from somebody else but I'll quote Kaisha <laughs> um but you have nothing to prove but you have everything to share and we need whatever you're giving us we really do uh, especially right now the world's kind of a mess friends and um I want to hear more people sing and I want more people to make art and I want more people to put their whole selves on stage. And when I'm sitting in the audience and I'm a voice teacher, y'all, I have a switch that goes off when I'm sitting in the audience and I am not there to judge you because you know, if you're paying me to help you with your voice, if you are paying me for that hour or whatever, 45 minutes, half hour, if you are paying me for that time, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to give you my opinion. But if I am sitting in the audience, I am there to simply experience. And a lot of people are there just to do that. So sing to them, perform to them and make art for them. All right, friends, I will talk to you next time. Sing strong.